The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome. Thank you for uh, taking the time to listen in today. Uh, today's show, we're going to be talking about museum governance. And before you turn me off, uh, take... Uh, this is a very, very important uh, topic. Uh, it is a timely topic. Over the last couple of months, uh, there have been articles in Time Magazine, the New York Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, specifically talking about two major institutions, the Detroit Institute of Arts and also the Corcoran uh, Gallery of Art here in Washington, D.C., uh, and decisions that boards of directors have made uh, uh, that uh, will change the history and the trajectory of these organizations. Uh, boards of trustees uh, are one of the unique things about nonprofits' uh, management, and I think that they can sometimes be terribly, terribly misunderstood. Uh, and also, they are uh, volunteer organizations, and here are volunteers who sometimes find themselves on the front lines and uh, in not such a favorable light. Sometimes that's deserved and sometimes it's not. It's a little bit confusing. And I wanted to talk uh, specifically about that, not only because it's timely in these last couple of articles that have uh, come out in major uh publications, but also it continues our theme uh, that we've had for the last couple of weeks about creativity and leadership, and we've talked about creativity with staff, and we've talked about leaderships with uh, with the director of the museum, but we really have sort of missed that third component, and that is the Board of Trustees. So luckily, I have on my show today two of the best thought leaders in looking at, at these issues, uh, and I also am very pleased to be able to count both of them as friends and colleagues uh, and members of the museum group. Maureen Robinson is the author of Nonprofit Boards That Work, The End of One-Size-Fits-All Government. Governance that was published by John Wiley and Sons. She's a consultant and speaker on topics related to leadership, governance, and management of the nonprofit sector. And in her work with nonprofits, she's focused on governance and leadership, organizational development, and strategic planning. 
I also have with me today Laura Roberts, who has an active consulting practice, Roberts Consulting, and who has been working with nonprofit organizations on strategic planning, assessment, staff and board training, and organizational development. She is also on the faculty of Harvard University's Extension Bank Street College of Education and the Seminar in Historical Administration. She's the chair of the advisory board of the Tufts University Art Gallery and serves on the university's Gifts of Art Committee. She's also uh, serves on several boards, including the Mary Baker Eddy Library and Central Square Theater. Welcome to you both. Thank Hi, you. Carol. Maureen, I'd like to start with you, if you wouldn't mind. And since many of our listeners are students learning the museum trade and craft, could you uh, help us here at the beginning by uh, defining what do we mean by governance? Who governs whom? Well, governance is a uh, is a pretty broad and uh, term that in different settings has different meanings. But when we look at governance in a museum setting or in the nonprofit setting, we're really looking at the body um, in an organization that is there to provide uh, oversight, accountability, sort of strategic thought and thinking um, for the work of the uh, of the nonprofit organization or the museum in this case. And often the the, um, the, the function of governance is defined uh, in contrast to management. So you you often see what the board does versus what management does. Um, but basically, the, that's what a governing body does. Even in an all-volunteer organization, you're going to have a board, and their responsibilities are going to be very comparable. And that is they have to provide good oversight, good accountability, and the capacity to make decisions that are, that are well-informed and well-rounded on behalf of the organization. So... So Laura, you sit on um, many boards, as I've as I've just described. Uh, what what's it like sitting on a board? Well, um, oftentimes it's extremely rewarding. Sometimes it's a little harrowing um, because the board is um, a legal term. Is that we are fiduciaries. We have the legal responsibility for the assets of the organization. Donations to nonprofits are tax exempt, which means that everybody paid a little bit for um, the largesse that went to those institutions. And so someone has to be um, accountable for the stewardship of those assets, and it's the board, it's not the staff. Um, and so um, when the rubber meets the road, it's the board that is responsible for having making sure that there's adequate money for making sure that the institution um, follows all legal regulations, that the staff um, is treated fairly, um, that the facilities don't pose any hazards either to the collections or to the visitors. So there's an awful lot of responsibility involved, and that's uh, you can't take that lightly. Um, and so, for example, this week, just the other day, uh, the Delaware Art Museum announced that they were going to be selling paintings to meet a $30 million debt. That's, that's the board's responsibility to figure out what are we going to do about a $30 million debt. Now, the staff obviously has been raising money like crazy, um, but, but ultimately it's the, it's the board's responsibility. So it, it can be very um, harrowing. I sit on a board where, I'm not going to tell you which one, where we just got last year's financial report, 
and we lost $15,000. And that money's got to be found somewhere. Now, so why do you do it? The other side of the coin is that it's incredibly rewarding to know that you are helping make a community better by strengthening the nonprofit organizations that contribute to that community. Um, and you have to believe in the mission of the organization. You have to believe that continuing this organization makes the world a better place in some way. That's very rewarding. Yes, I, I, I hear all of those things. I think when I was, uh, la- was reading the articles, uh, in the Washington Post and the, uh, Wall Street Journal about everyone having an opinion about the, uh, uh, the board's decision at the Corcoran Museum of Art to essentially, or, uh, Gallery of Art, uh, essentially to split the institution and give the building and its, uh, educational mission, uh, to George Washington University and to give the, uh, the museum component and the collection to the National Gallery uh, and some of the statements that were were made about that board and the board's decisions. Uh, all I could think of was, thank God, I'm not on that board. Uh, and I and I don't know anyone who uh, was reading those articles who probably was feeling the same thing. Those those uh, men and women were really on the front lines, and here in Washington, we all know who they are. Um, that's uh, that's that's tough for a volunteer gig. Well, and as a Washingtonian, let me comment on that for just a minute. I, I think when you look at the, the the eventual reason the Corcoran uh, made the news in the Washington Post, um, it was at a real crossroads in terms of its um, capacity to um, maintain itself in the future. Um, but when you when you look at what was the board's role in the in the decisions that uh, both, both the situation in which the museum found itself as well as the decisions that the board now needed to make you actually had to go back a little way and see that there was a, a point in the Corcoran's history when the board was extremely large and um, uh, people hardly knew they were on a board because it was so large and showing up didn't matter. Uh, and they had a, a, a very, very um, uh, unfortunate set of decisions around the Robert Maplethorpe show many years ago that, um, that focused again on the board. Um, when it recovered from that experience, the Corcoran decided, I think as many museums do, and I think as the Delaware Art Museum uh, did, uh, was that they needed to have a new building to expand physically. And the course of doing that um, discovered after, um, I, I think, probably focusing very heavily on that process of raising the money, getting the plans, building community support, that they didn't have what it took to execute and so um, at the end of that interval, the, the institution was pretty exhausted. And I think the sort of third phase and the one that this, um, uh, that's, that's apparent right now is that um, over that period of time, the Corcoran um, really lost its position in the community as a place uh, of real value and meaning. There was a small cadre of supporters who felt very strongly about the role of the Corcoran historically and, and certainly through um, uh, the last uh, 30 or 40 years. But the last 10 years have been really quiet for the Corcoran, and you did not see the community rallying uh, to, the, to the Corcoran's side uh, when it faced a decision about how to go forward. Uh, and consequently, the board that's in place, which I think has been very, very thoughtful through this last process, 
is dealing with the accumulated weight of history, but I think primarily of the accumulated weight of um, having not been a vigorous part of the of the community in Washington, and consequently um, did not have, as the Detroit Institute of Arts did, uh, a deep well of public support and um, uh, and goodwill to draw on. Uh, and I will say, just as someone who lives in the city, I, I think the Corcoran's made very good, the wards made very good, very responsible decisions. But those were decisions that it had to reach really kind of up against the wall. Um, and if you could go back, you'd know that that board uh, would have um, done some of its work differently. And what's interesting is that as we professionalize our marketing efforts in these institutions and hire people who actually know how to market, you don't even hear the words public relations anymore or press release. You know, we've become very sophisticated in our marketing and much more sophisticated in our understanding of the needs and desires of our audiences and much more audience-focused. And as we professionalize in that way, we sort of lose the fact, lose sight of the fact that our boards are still some of our most important ambassadors in the community and our, and some of our most important um, conduits of information back from the community, particularly in smaller organizations where they should be community leaders. They should be people who are sitting on the Chamber of Commerce, um, going to um, the planning board meeting, um, talking to their friends and neighbors, and being able to come into the boardroom and say, this is what's going on in this town. This is what we have to be aware of. This is how we can better serve this community. And the staff doesn't necessarily live in town. The board usually does live at least... live in the market area or or the if it's a national board in the service group and so a group of people that the institution serves and so it's really an an important part of a board's job to have its pulse on its community and um and and it's and that's that's hard to do that's really hard to do i think that's a very important uh point to make laura and i I think it is not made often and well enough that there is, that a board is of the community and it's one of its primary responsibilities is making that liaison or bridge with the community. And too often it's reduced to the yes, it's the community of donors. And that's an important part of its job to cultivate a donor base and to, to uh, represent the organization in a donor base, but it's more than that. It's also the political stakeholders, it's the civic leadership. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of pieces of, of influence and and concern in the community. Maureen, uh, I think one of the the questions then for me is uh, is who who's serving on boards today? I mean, it, are it. Uh, how do you get selected for a board? Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting question. I, I think um, whether you're a large or small museum, whether you're an, uh, a regional institution or national institution or a very local institution, in the case of museums, you could be a history museum or a children's museum or an art museum. Even within all that diversity, you know, the board is a common feature to them all. Um, and they, and the, the process of um, identifying and recruiting and cultivating uh, a continuous um, stream of board members uh, for an institution 
uh, is, a, is a big task, and it's often neglected a little bit. Uh, in terms of who's serving on the board, I, I think it's almost as um, I think it's almost as diverse as the institutions that um, that are being governed. Uh, one thing I think that Laura mentioned that's worth keeping in mind is um, the work has to be both satisfying, but you have to embrace the fact that it can be harrowing. Uh, and I, I think for museum boards, um, uh, often. Uh, uh, one of the biggest stumbling blocks is the um, is the belief that the primary responsibility of the board is to fundraise. And while that's an important assignment, uh, I think the conversation we've had so far would indicate that the, the bigger responsibility is to be that ambassador and to be a very persuasive maker of the case, whether it's to a donor or to its uh, community member. So the people who serve on boards are people who said yes to that assignment. Um, uh, I think it's gotten very hard to recruit for board members. There's a sort of heightened sense of that the harrowing side of the equation. Um, this is a you know tough time economically for for museums and nonprofit organizations, and I, I think that um, makes it a, a serious decision uh, for an individual who's been uh, asked to serve on a board. Do I want to take on that responsibility, and do I want to take on that liability? Um, it doesn't help that the only time museums make the headlines is when uh, there's something amiss. And of course, the the tagline is "Where was the board?" Um, but but I, I you know I do think that's one of the uh, one of the, the major challenges both for a board and an executive director is to continuously look for, cultivate, and recruit good board members. And uh, one of the issues uh, that that's come up, Carol, I think you were alluding to it earlier, is this question of generational change. And um, and I think that's going to be a very interesting question uh, for um, uh, for museums in particular. Um, I don't think Laura will be insulted if I say that the cohort for board service tends to skew a little old, older, <laughs> um, because we're people who both have time and have a place in the community, and also uh, are in a place professionally where we we have um, uh, more time and discretion. Very, very good point, and I want to come back to that uh, after we uh, break for a moment uh, and ask some more questions about the, the uh, next generation of volunteerism and also board members. But for right now, we're going to take a short break. Remember, you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com or send me an email at carol.bossert at verizon.net. You're listening to Museum Life. We're talking about uh, museum governance, and I'm sure we have much more topics to uh, cover today, so please uh, tune back in after this brief message. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Carla Howell, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with Maureen Robinson and Laura Roberts, and we're talking about museum governance. And uh, we have a couple of, of, right before break, we were talking about uh, the selection of board members and the kinds of board members that are going to be interested in doing this kind of work. And uh, one of the the interesting things that um, was reported uh, recently, uh, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, who was the granddaughter of uh, of one of the members of the founding board of the Whitney Museum of Art, writes about uh, the idea that in the 1950s and 60s, trustees were idealistic and committed to public service. And they possessed, and this is her quote, a genuine love of art and faith in the museum. However, she writes that uh, by the 1970s and 80s, museum boards were, uh, board members were looking at uh, being on a board more for social status and for uh, business connections. Now, I'm, I'm not going to argue that one way or the other, but I think that that's a very interesting observation uh, about how, obviously, boards have changed over the years. Uh, Maureen, can you give us some insight into, into that? I mean, is, she, is that true? Well, I, I do think that there, you know, she's, she's basically making two points there. One about, um, the inherent value of the institutions and what motivated people to be on the board was this sort of higher calling that was associated with the, the work itself. I would certainly say that there's still quite a bit of that, um, in terms of what motivates people to serve on boards. 
it, it, it is, in fact, uh, great work and very fulfilling. On the other hand, um, the boards are seen as being influential places, and consequently people who want to be close to influence or affluence um, will um, will be attracted to boards. Um, that's not everyone's motivation, but it's um, it's clearly uh, one motivation. And and let me give you an example of of why it's not always as as bad as it might seem. I just had this vision of all these people climbing over each other to get on a board. Um, but for for corporate America, for instance, um, uh, and it's often seen as as good business and and good for leadership development for people who are rising in a corporation to take a role in the community, and it's usually at the board level. Uh, and museums are interested in cultivating exactly those people because they bring uh, a circle of connections, they bring a body of expertise that can sometimes be very, very useful uh, to, a, to a museum and expensive to acquire on the marketplace. So there's, there's a mutual piece of this, but I would say that the, the reasons for being on a board are more mixed than they than they might have been a uh, hundred years ago, and I'm, I'm sure um, uh, Mrs. Vanderbilt is not referring to a hundred years ago, but probably fifty years ago. But nevertheless, I, I think the motives are more mixed than they used to be, but they're not always uh, uh, they're not always uh, completely craven either. That's a that's a very good uh, uh, that's a very good point, uh, Laura. You wanted to uh, make a point about the just the proliferation of uh, nonprofits and museum nonprofits and what that's doing to uh, to boards and the ability to gather good board members. It's absolutely true, and you know, time was that someone like me wouldn't have served on a nonprofit board. I didn't have the money, I didn't have the name, I didn't have the influence, I didn't have the connections. Um, you know, yes, people on the Whitney board might have been serving out of love of the art, but they were also drawn from that circle. Um, they were they were not um, people who grew up and went to a public high school and whose you know parents never graduated from college. Um, so uh, we're seeing many, many more middle class people serving on boards because there are so many board seats to fill. Um, the number of nonprofits in this country has just multiplied enormously. And so we find people who, number one, don't necessarily have the means that um, we need uh, on boards. And every board that I work with sits there and says, you know, there's such competition for the few wealthy people in this community. They're serving on the hospital board. They're serving on the board of their kids' school. They're serving on their church. The competition for the few pockets of wealth in most communities is enormous. Um, but the other part of it is that we weren't raised understanding the obligations of board service. We didn't have parents who went off to board meetings. We didn't have parents who bought tickets for galas and invited eight people to share their table. We don't, we don't understand that. We don't understand that world. And so the, the challenge of board education, of really what does this involve and how is it different from volunteering? How is it different from being on the board of your kid's cooperative nursery school? What, what are the obligations of, of stewardship um, is really challenging. Um, and um, I, I work with a lot of boards, and um, I, I try and counsel board nominating committees to sort of have a watch list of the people who are good, experienced, knowledgeable, um, t- 
talented board members in their community and watch for when they do cycle off of the hospital board and the school board and whatever and be ready to pounce on them because those people are so valuable to organizations. They're community leaders, they're experienced board members, and they can help the less experienced board members understand what their job is. Well, you know, one of, one of the questions that this raises for me, and, and I do not sit on any uh, nonprofit boards uh, at the moment, but it, 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 it seems to me that it's also a two-way street. Uh, we're asking uh, members of the community to, uh, to learn and be cultivated to uh, sort of a, a board function style. You mentioned uh, you know, buying tickets for the gala or uh, knowing how to sit in on committees and, and knowing how to get work done through that kind of group process. And at the same time, we, uh, we know that people weren't, weren't groomed to that. Many people aren't even necessarily interested in that. They want a more hands-on experience. Uh, and so while we're asking these potential uh, leaders to change and fit our mode, don't we also have an obligation to begin to uh, change ourselves and, um, and meet uh, these new players uh, halfway? Maureen? Well, you know, I think it's an I think it's an interesting question. Um, often, what we focus on, uh, and, and this is as managers, as executive directors and managers of museums and nonprofits, what what we focus on uh, is just a narrow slice of that governance pie. And and because we're looking primarily at that piece of fundraising, um, we're, we're really we're really not investing uh, in um, in the process of making people as effective as possible. And, and I think the, 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 the other sort of larger shift that you see um, uh, in the sector, and I think this is particularly true with, um, with museums, is this movement away from pro forma governance or compliance governance, which I, I, I don't want to discount the, the need for a board to be thoughtful about compliance, um, but really you're looking for effectiveness. And, um, and you are asking people, to, to bring a certain level of engagement and a, a sort of steady focus to the work, a willingness to learn, collaborate, um, work as a team and in partnership with the staff. But if you're on the staff side of that equation, that's a very demanding, uh, that's a very demanding um, uh, role for you as a staff leader to sort of facilitate that process on the other side of the table. And, um, and I, I often think that's where, um, that's where a, a piece of important work gets lost because the staff... Um, is not as prepared to make that particular investment uh, and is hoping that the board comes ready-made. Uh, and when it doesn't and, and isn't performing at that level, I think that's often when um, boards begin to get a, a bad reputation uh, among staff. Uh, so it's a, it's a really interesting challenge to look at that sort of two-way piece of capacity building that needs to be taking place in a museum. And one of the things, if I may, one yeah. of the things that we don't understand about executive directors is that they get a new boss every two or three or four years when the board president changes. I mean, imagine how harrowing that would be for somebody in any other position, um, that suddenly they've got a new person that they've got to develop a partnership, got to understand a working relationship, um, and... And often board presidents are chosen because they're different than the prior board president. Something was wrong and so we want a different style of leadership. It can be really whipsawing. 
And is and is that uh, uh, just as a point of reference? That is typical that the board uh, the board chair does change every two to three years. Well, is that usually uh, uh, part of the uh, the bylaws of of the organization? It it's it's um. Maureen, Maureen's much more uh, up on this than, than I am, but it turns out it, it tends to be cultural that there are organizations, there are communities where people stay in board leadership forever. Brooklyn, New York, for example, the leaders of the major cultural institutions in Brooklyn um, can, can stay as board chair for, for 20 years. But the new best practice in boards is that um, in order for boards to not get complacent, and for that um, fiduciary responsibility to remain fresh, we've instituted term limits. Mm. And so boards, people rotate off boards much more often. And it's not uncommon to find that you, you have someone who doesn't have more than a couple of years left of eligibility to serve on the board. Yeah. Um, and, so, and, and then the other part of it is that board service is so demanding and the job is so important that someone who's, talented and in a responsible position and has a lot of other commitments finds they, they're not willing to do it for more than a couple of years. I'm, I'm now working with two, two different boards um, that are looking carefully at succession planning in a, in, a, in a very deliberate and intentional way, and, and both have long-serving uh, chairs. One, one is a 12 or 13-year tenure. The other is much, much longer and could be considered almost a founding chair. So the institution's really heavily identified with this individual, whereas the other, it's just been the, the tradition for chairs to serve for, for a decade or so. And, and I think both institutions and both leaders recognize that, that that is not the model that is going to benefit the institution, the museum going forward. Um, so two very different places um, looking at this issue of succession uh, in in a in a very very thoughtful way, and um, in addition to you know looking at bench strength, looking down the table, <laughs> and and trying to determine who have we recruited um, who could play this role. There's there's an additional question about who do we need to continually recruit who can play this role, um, and then and then at a more practical level, these people have led with a certain style, and uh, as Laura points out, the executive director. Uh, also long-serving directors in both cases, um, have become accustomed to that person. So there's a, a lot of anxiety um, around around that change and the risk involved in, in changing and disrupting that very critical relationship. And so uh, I think to the credit of both organizations, they're, they're not, you know, um, rushing to, um, to name a successor. They're using it, the whole process, as a way to, um, uh, to create a, a smooth transition that works for both the staff as well as for the board, and that guarantees that the next direct, uh, the next chair, is going to be successful in that role. Um, so it's a, that, for me, is a uh, is an, an interesting variation uh, on the um, uh, just on the technical side of turnover versus succession planning. Well, the other the other problem that you have when you, when the culture is that a chair serves for a decade is that nobody's willing to take that job. And, and that is a legitimate question. Um, I, I think that, um, in, in, again, in these two cases, it's been addressed very thoughtfully. The, the, the idea that you will need to recruit someone for the job, um, in part because it's time-consuming, I think, as Laura said, but also because this person needs to know 
that the job they'll do does not have to be identical to the job of their predecessor, that it'll be a different job and a job that they shape, uh, not an absolute reproduction of the um, person who's been there for 10 or 12 years or 20 or 30 years. Um, so it's a, it, it is a, it's a complicated process, and um, good organizations, um, I think, and good museums really invest in thinking about how to do it well. And, and you can watch it in a board dynamic when there is an heir apparent, a chair-elect or a, a senior vice-chair, um, and the, the annual meeting is approaching, and, and you start to see them sort of throw a few more elbows at the sitting chair um, because they can envision, you know, two meetings from now, this is going to be my meeting, and it's going to mm-hmm. be a different meeting. Um, and... Uh, and and that's the right thing. That's that's the right transition. Um, uh, that's the healthy transition in an organization, so that it does stay fresh. Can I do a pivot off of this, Carol? Yes, please. Um, one of the things that this raises for me, and I, I go back to something that Laura mentioned as well, is this idea of stewardship. And um, one of the interesting things about um, governing uh, in a museum context. Uh, and this is not true for all museums, but I think it's true for most, is the, is the notion of perpetuity that's attached to the collection. So um, most nonprofit organizations, if they're doing something that's considered a public good, anticipate doing it forever, right? For, for as long as it's good, <laughs> they, won't do, they should be doing it well forever. Um, the exception, of course, are the health organizations or the disease organizations where that's victory when you put yourself out of business. But for a museum with a collection, the notion of perpetuity and being a steward, not just of the institution in the moment, but the institution uh, and, its, and its value over time to future generations, is a, is a very different dimension um, to stewardship than you see in other settings. So um, in a, a, a social service agency or a community-based group that may, in fact, successfully complete its job or may, in fact, find that someone else does the job better uh, and um, uh, compels them to close. And museums are a much tougher proposition uh, in those terms. And, um, and, and that's a, a, a dimension of governance, I think, that um, sets that, Museum trustee um, role part uh, in many ways, um, and and I you know when when we look at uh, a decision like the decision at the Delaware Art Museum to sell something from the collection in order to preserve the financial viability of the institution, for those of us in the field, that's just a heart stopping set of decisions. Um, it just touches all the nerves uh, in the uh, in the museum. Uh, ethos. I, I, I want to go back, Carol, if I might, to your question about generational change, because I think it's a really important one, and we, we sidestepped it. And I think you said, should we be meeting the new generation at least halfway? And the answer is absolutely. Um, and it's very hard to change the culture of a board, um, to do things like to get it to meet at a different hour, or to meet more um, shorter, you know, can we can we cut this board meeting down from three hours on Friday afternoon to an hour and a half after work on Wednesday? Um, for some boards, even embracing technology, can we meet by conference call? Can we meet by Skype? Um, can we 
um, get an intranet up on the museum's website so that we can exchange documents more efficiently. Um, all of those things that younger board members push that some of the older board members really resist. And, and those are the easy things. <laughs> those are the things that, that you know, you, you just sort of have to do a little bit of hand-holding and continue to send out some things by hard copy for the two or three people who refuse to use an intranet. But the other part about institutional culture, and, and this is one of the things that staff members never really get, um, and that is the importance of a board to bond as a working unit and to have that sense of collegiality, um, which means that after the board meeting, you open a bottle of wine and you stand around and you chat and you do talk about each other's vacations and kids and um, business. Um, there was research out of Harvard now about 10 or 15 years ago that talked about how important it was for a board to have that sense of collegiality as a unit. And when you diversify a board by age, by gender, by race, by economic situation, it becomes much more challenging to create that, those bonds, um, which are important for, to create a cohesive organization. And that's one of the things that, um, we really struggle to get right. Um, you know, when, when you're looking at somebody who's the age of your kids or your grandkids, um, to be able to treat them with respect and have uh, a productive conversation. When you're talking to someone who comes from a significantly different cultural background than you do, lives in a different part of town than you do, doesn't vacation the way you do, it, it, it's, um, it's challenging, and yet it's really important. To, to yes. work it out. I think yes. Thank you, Laura. That's uh, those both the comment, Maureen, that you that uh, that you were making about the importance of uh, boards uh, ensuring perpetuity. And uh, thank you, Laura, for going back and uh, reminding us of the challenges of uh, boards being in sort of a microcosm of the world that we live in today. And and uh, we shouldn't be surprised at at those challenges. I'm going to interrupt this uh, very important and uh, uh, dynamic discussion for our uh, final break, but please come back uh, and uh, share the last uh, uh, few minutes of our conversation with these two very important thought leaders on uh, museum governance. Maureen Robinson and Laura Roberts, and I'm going to uh, take a sip of coffee while we're on break. Remember, you can always uh, catch me at carolbossertservices.com or shoot me an email at carol.bossert at verizon.net. You're listening to Museum Life. We'll be back in a minute. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. 
Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard. I'm here with Maureen Robinson and Laura Roberts. We've been talking about museum governance. And right before break, uh, uh, we were talking a little bit about the challenges that all organizations uh, in a community face because they're all sort of vying for the same board members. And as Laura and I have talked over uh, over time, uh, we sometimes, uh, you know, a, a community will say, well, this is the A board or this is the B board or, uh, you know, we're a tiny organization. We have the C board. And what, Laura, what does that really mean? Well, um, I don't think anybody ever confesses to being the seaboard. I think we're, we all uh, engage in the um, prairie home companion assumption that we're all above average, uh, but some of us are just average. Um, and and an A board, I would say an A board, um, you would you would talk about that in two ways. So one is its composition, that it really is the desirable board. It's the board that people want to be on. No one ever says no. Um, unless they think they can't meet the giving expectation, um, if you get on it, you you to get back to uh, Ms. Whitney, um, it will um, give you prestige and influence and um, make you seem important in the community. Um, and and those boards, you know, it's relatively easy to recruit for those boards. You're honored when you're invited to be on those boards. Um, but there's another component, which is that really an A board is a board that deserves the A grade, that functions well, um, that does its job, uh, that has the capacity and skill that needs to do the job, has a good relationship with its staff, has a great relationship with the community, and raises enough money. And so, you know, you, you only get to stay an A board if you behave like an A board. Mm-hmm. Um, a B board is a board where you have to scrape for each board member, and you've got to recruit, and you've got to woo, and you've got to network, and uh, you maybe have to take the junior partner out of the prestigious law firm uh, because, as Maureen said, uh, the law firm has an expectation that you do some sort of community service and get involved in the community. Um, but, you're, you know, that junior partner isn't going to be able to make a significant a gift, won't have the kind of social networks yet in town, Um and we'll be making a variety of contributions, but different contributions than the senior partner is going to make. Um, 
The problem is that bee boards stay bee boards because they lack access to those top-shelf names um, for fundraising and for board service and for community support. Um, and so I've been on a number of bee boards um, where we just sit there and think, God, you know, if we could just get one of them, we could just get one of the people who shows up in the society columns, one of the people who has a healthy Rolodex to build up the annual fund, um, just one person, maybe it would give us a toehold um, to the more wealthy echelons in this community and the more influential echelons. Um, and, and it's so hard. It's so hard because they're getting offers from A boards. Maureen, do you want to weigh in? Well, this is such a delicate this is such a delicate topic, and I you know I like the way Laura described an, an, another way of thinking about the A board is the you know highly effective board and very engaged and high performing, and people want to say yes to it. But but frankly, often we are talking about a, a, a sort of status distinction between the board that can automatically attract a member. And those that need to work a little harder to to get um, to get a broad array of people at, at all ends of the of the community spectrum involved, and um, you know it's just one of those really brutal facts of life, and one of the reasons why you you never stop thinking about who might be a good candidate and what's the best case that you could make to get them involved. Um, I'm I'm always surprised um, uh, in in Washington. Um, uh, to see who who is serving on which boards, uh, and uh, and sometimes um, the museum boards don't surprise you. Uh, it, it'll be a community-based organization that surprises you by uh, engaging two or three people uh, who have um, clearly uh, a, a lot of things that they could could choose to do, but in fact are choosing to do this, uh, and that's inspiring to everybody around them. Not just their peers, but everyone you know, everyone who comes into the room and works with them. So I think that's an interesting challenge um, for for a, a, a small to mid-sized museum to figure out um, within within reason um, how do you build the board that attracts the most positive attention possible, and is it going to be through the virtue of your work and and the stellar quality and reputation you have for for that level of work, or is it going to be that you have um, attracted people who had many choices about where to serve, but have, have chosen to serve with you. Um, and, and I think that's a you know that's that's a, a, a very tough question to to answer, one very hard to address, and yet it's happening in every uh, in every board mu- in every boardroom um, in every museum that I that, that I'm familiar with. And to get back to the generational question. One of the things that um, is changing the way younger people think about their board service is that they're, I think in general, many are less interested in the prestige and more interested in the demonstrated effectiveness of the organization and um, less likely to be impressed by the value of the collection and more likely to, to look at the metrics of success for actual community impact and change, um, which is making it more difficult for museums to attract board members um, as compared to social service organizations. And it's also true about donors in general, not just board members. And so, um, and, and that this is true for all arts organizations, where the case is so much more ephemeral and not easily um, reduced to numbers and ratios and metrics and things like that. 
um, a younger generation of entrepreneurs, um, again, not coming from a tradition of um, board service, um, is much more likely to look at their board um, options the way they would an investment. Um, And if it doesn't look like a good investment of their time, they're less likely to say yes. Um, And I think that's hurting a lot of arts organizations. So it seems to me that that one, uh, going back to a theme that uh, many of of my guests uh, 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 reach, and that is museums still need to make the case that they are not just nice to have, but they are essential to have. And they need to be making that case not only to their prospective uh, uh, visitors and prospective uh, members, but they need to be uh, making that case to their prospective board members, uh, uh, members of, of their community who are not looking at this so that they can just hobnob with some other people and have a nice glass of wine, uh, but uh, to really show impact in their community. Do I have that right? You sure do. Yeah, well, that- I, I have to, I'm going to say that I, I, I recall um, very clearly once upon a time being uh, a young person. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I'm sure that memory will fade, but I do remember it. And, and I, I just remember the, the, the sort of bafflement. And, the, of course, I was, uh, I was in my, you know, teens and 20s through the late 60s and 70s, and consequently, uh, you know, we were a mysterious generation, right? And and um, and uh, and I uh, now, of course, I'm I'm at the other end of that uh, that age spectrum, and and almost I hear myself being you know tantalized and mystified uh, by um, by uh, the young professionals uh, and what they value and what their style is and what interests them and what doesn't. And oh gosh, it makes me feel very old. Well, and it's not just young, because my husband, who's the same age I am, but who comes from a technology and venture capital background, um, he he was recruited by a board, um, and he he was most impressed by the fact that they they could tell him every month what difference they had made. It's a board that it's an organization that works with homeless people and gets them into jobs. Well, that's something that really does lend itself to counting and to comparing numbers from one quarter to the next. And as a business person, that made a lot of sense to him. And he comes home with numbers that none of my organizations could even approach. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an interesting challenge. I, I think that if, um, if that's a, a trend in the culture to be able to show impact, museums are only, I, I think, now really grappling with uh, with uh, with not just making that case, but genuinely trying to uncover how they how they measure their impact. Um, but you're right. I think at the board level, um, it's a temperamental issue and a, and a, an appetite uh, for numbers and results that that we just can't uh, we just can't overlook. On the other hand, I'm working with an organization now that has a board member who um, comes from a, a Jesuit education and then went to Yale. And when I talked, when he talked about what he wanted to see this organization accomplish, he talked as movingly and as with as much sophistication as any museum education director that I've ever come across in terms of both the spiritual change that happens as well as the information, people being comfortable, people um, engaging in a variety of ways with a variety of people. I would have given him the job of director of education in a heartbeat. 
Um, and he's also of our generation, but he gets it. He gets the unmeasurable um, impact. And then he turns to me and says, and now we've got to figure out how to communicate it, how to prove it. Um, and so that's the kind of board member that's worth his weight in gold. Mm, absolutely. Well, we've had a marvelous conversation today. Uh, I, there are many take-home lessons I think that you've, you've both uh, offered. I think the most important one that I'm taking away is that boards are not something that, that uh, sits separate from an institution, but just like every other aspect of museum work, they need to be cultivated, they need to be nurtured, and they need to be brought into the, the fold, so to speak, of the organization. They both mirror the organization and they, they goad the organization to be, to be better. Uh, at the end of the day, we're talking about people, people making a difference, people wanting to feel uh, uh, supported and, that, uh, and to be rewarded and um, acknowledged for making that kind of difference. And with the added opportunity that um, they sometimes have to make the tough decisions and they end, and if it's a wrong decision, Unfortunately, we'll hear about it on the front pages of the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, thank you both so much. Maureen Robinson, I want to remind listeners, she is an author of uh, several books, including Nonprofit Boards That Work, The End of One-Size-Fits-All Governance, uh, is a consultant for boards and museums, uh, so you may want to keep her in mind should you want to move your board to A-type functioning. And also Laura Roberts. Uh, who has a fantastic consulting practice and also helps uh, helps out boards and organizations find their strategic place in the world. Uh, again, you've been listening to Museum Life. Uh, I want to thank both of my guests today. Remember, uh, we're here each week with issues related to the museum community. Uh, drop me a line at carol.bossert at verizon.net to tell me what you're concerned about and what issues we should be taking up on the only live talk radio show that focuses on museum issues. Thank you so much for listening today, and we will be back next week uh, continuing our thread of leadership, governance, and creativity. Thank you uh, both, Maureen and Laura. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. We'll be back next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. <laughs>